Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We'll be reading from Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. So believe it or not, we are in the season Advent Christmas season has finally started. Who's excited about that? We're ready for it. And for all the cheaters out there who prematurely started celebrating with your decorations and your music before Thanksgiving, you are forgiven. Just don't do it again. It's kind of like, you know, people who show up at a surprise party and they get so excited they yell surprise before the person has actually entered the room. That's how it is for you. You are premature. And selfish, you need to quit it. Okay, I love Christmas. I love this season. I love everything about it. I love the bad sweaters. I love the cheesy music. Uh, I'm a personal fan of Burl Ives, the old-timey Christmas music. That's the stuff I love the most. I even love tinsel. I love eggnog. I will watch the movie Elf three times this month, guaranteed. Now, I know that for many of us, this is the best time of year, but for other people, Christmas is actually really, really hard. Um, it can be really challenging because we get worked up as a society during this time. We want to have like the perfect Instagram Christmas experience. We also, we schedule more than we can manage. We spend more money than we have. We build up these uh, expectations for ourselves and for our family members. And then on Christmas Day, by lunchtime, Our house is trashed, we're somehow exhausted, we have a credit card bill heading our way, and some of us have the taste of uh, slight disappointment in our mouths after the Christmas experience is over with. So I just want us to also just consider that there's also another way. For generations, people who followed Christ um, have practiced a season different than Christmas season, and that's the season of Advent. Um, This word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means an arrival, an awaiting, that has actually come to end, a visit. And so in the season of Advent, we remember that people had a longing for Jesus to come, and that longing was experienced in fullness 2,000 years ago. But many of us still today, we have our own longings that we are sitting with. We have an expectation, a hope of an arrival in the conclusion of something in our life. And so this year, our, in the Christmas calendar, Advent is actually the beginning of the year. So happy New Year's Day in some ways. Um, this begins, and it's, for me, it's really interesting because um, we are people of deep longings, but some of us aren't in tune with those longings. We can't really put a finger on it. We can't really name it in our life. And so the season of Advent invites you to do the opposite of what our culture does, which is run faster, run more, uh, fill up your calendar. The season of Advent actually invites you to do the opposite, which is to wait, to practice waiting, to become familiar with the longings that we have that another pair of socks can't satisfy, you know? 
And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to try as much as we can to shrug off the pull of consumerism and the noise of Christmas and to practice waiting for our Savior, uh, even though we live in a very unwaiting world. The German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who uh, was, he was there, he, was, he led an opposition towards Hitler in that time. He actually said this about the season of Advent. He said, not everyone can wait, neither, neither the sated or the satisfied. The only ones who can wait are people who carry restlessness around with them. Thus, Advent can be celebrated only by those whose souls give them no peace, who know that they are poor and incomplete, and who sense something of the greatness that is supposed to come before which they can only bow in humble timidity, waiting until he inclines himself towards us, the Holy One himself, God in the child in the manger. Advent is for those whose longings this world cannot fill, who embrace a sense of restlessness with all the promises that this world can offer, knowing that there's more to come. So in this season of Advent, we're going to practice that sense of expectation and anticipation for the help that we know we look for with Christ as Christ continues to show up. And we know that that sense of waiting is also important because the way in which Christ tends to show up is often overlooked or misunderstood. In the same way that Jesus came to us 2,000 years ago, God still arrives in our own lives in subtle ways, unforeseen ways, much like a child being born on a starry night without fanfare in a barn with a stench of manure in the air to the audience of parents looking at the Son of God in a trough. This is the one we are anticipating and looking for in our own life. So this Advent season, we're going to consider this idea of waiting underneath, underneath this major theme of God with us. The name Emmanuel means God with us. And we remember God's character, God's longing, his passion to be with us. Well, this is what we see throughout all of Scripture, throughout all of time, is God has an inclination to be with God's people throughout all of our failures, throughout all our successes, throughout time and generation and culture, God wants to be here with us. This is the promise of Emmanuel. And on this day where we have this candle of hope burning, that is the fountain of hope that we have in our own life, is that God is continually Emmanuel. God is with us here today. God is with you in your own life. I believe the Bible is a beautiful, expansive story sharing that one truth in that Emmanuel is not just a, Christ, a Christmas theme or concept, but it's littered throughout the Bible. We even find that in this writing in the book of Hebrews. So I want to talk about the book of Hebrews. Bible scholars don't actually know much about the author or the context in which this writing was, uh, was written. And this New Testament writing comes out of this unknown context. Yet this is what we do know about the writing of Hebrews, is that this original audience were Christians steeped in the Jewish tradition. They didn't convert from Judaism to Christianity. They actually saw Jesus as the culmination of the Jewish faith. And so they were steeped in that tradition. That's how they understood God. This is the other thing we know about the people whom this was written for, was that these were people that were following Christ. And because of that, they experienced a lot of persecution. A lot of hardship and suffering came as a result of their faith. 
And so this writing in many ways was meant to give them hope. Hope that Jesus truly was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In the hope in the midst of their own advent, their own longing for, for healing and restoration and peace to come in the midst of conflict, that these are people of great hope. And so this writing was trying to encourage this. One of the key verses we find in the book of Hebrews is in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The author is trying to set the tone by saying this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The author is beginning this whole writing to say that Jesus is the, now the most clear and authoritative way in which God will ever speak to us. It is now in Jesus. Therefore, whenever we think of God, we must now process our understanding of God through the filter of Jesus, because God is, in a word, Jesus-like. You know, this is how we know and understand who God is. We have Jesus, the one in, in which God's now speaking to us. But then the author continues, the Son, the Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus is this radiance of God's glory and the representation or the stamp or the image, God's very own image now with us. Now for me, if I were to read this in that original audience, you're, this author is making this great uh, concept of who Jesus is. God's glory and radiance. Jesus is the, the image of God. And for me, this kind of conjures up a picture of God's grandness, his mystery, his powerful, but somewhat removed from my life. And especially if you're going through hardship, that almost paints this otherness of who Jesus is. And you might even hear someone ask, so that's great that Jesus is all powerful and wonderful, but I kind of need hope here and now, like now with me. And we find the author is writing and it comes in chapter 4, he begins to speak about what, what meaning we can find with this. In chapter 4, uh, he begins to talk about Jesus as a new high priest. And this is what he says, chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God. Now, who here, if you're going through struggles and hardship, the idea of having a, a high priest just just gives you so much comfort. Oh, good, I just needed one more priest in my life, right? <laughs> so that's so far removed from our experience. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, as the high priest, probably packed a little bit of hope in it because uh, it, it, they were so familiar with what was happening, what that role was. And so um, this is, I just want to nerd out just for a little bit. Can I nerd out a little bit just to talk about why this is meaningful? is the role of the high priest in that society, in that culture, was the one person who was set apart to go into the holiest of holies, like, which is like the inner part of the temple this, where no one could go in other than this one person on one day a year. And the reason why is because they believed that God's unique holy radiance, his presence was there in the holiest of holies. And the priest would go there that one day a year uh, on a holiday called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which our Jewish friends still celebrate and consider each year. And this one person would go into that space 
after, after they have slaughtered a bull for their own sins and for the, fa- the sins of their family, they would cleanse themselves through that process. And then after that, then two goats would be used. The first goat would be brought in. Who, who cares about this still? Are you still with me? The first goat would be brought in to be a sacrificial token for the sins of the people. And the blood would be used as a, a, a sacrifice in that way. Now, the second bull we brought in, and the priests would put their hands on, on that goat. And they would confess over that goat all that the nation had done that year, all the sins of the people. And then someone, a man, would take that goat and take it into the wilderness and just send it out. <laughs> and with that, they would believe that God would grant the people forgiveness one more year. Hence the term scapegoat. It comes from that tradition. And that's what happens year after year. So think about that in this context. The audience who received this writing, who was steeped in the Jewish tradition, they would rehearse Yom Kippur just like we rehearse uh, Christmas every single year. They would be so in tune with that story. So when they hear that Jesus now this image of God, the radiance of God's glory, is now your high priest. Light bulbs would be going off for them that for you and I, we would yawn at. <laughs> but these light bulbs, these connecting dots would be so powerful for them because what this author is saying is you no longer have to live within that structure that we were raised in because we now have a new great high priest in Jesus. This one person that was set apart doesn't just disappear one day a year but in the holiest of holies, but is now with God in God's sacred presence for all of time. And that sacrificial system of sin and atonement is actually done. It's complete. Jesus is now sitting down at the right hand of God. There's no more slaughtering. There's no more cycles of sin and blood and sacrifices and guilt paying year after year. This incomplete religious system is now fulfilled. It's complete. Jesus, furthermore, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that completed everything, that has paid for all of the sins of all the world for all of time. And upon Jesus, there's no more need for that. And furthermore, Jesus was the scapegoat that was sent off into the wilderness of Golgotha upon that cross. And when Jesus was fixed upon that cross, so is all our attempts of making ourselves right before God. And on that cross, all of the scapegoating that we do to one another to feel like someone has to pay for our mistakes, that's complete too. All of the violence that we have done to one another, believing that more death is required for good life, that is over with. It's done. No more punishment like that. Upon that cross, the transaction, the transactional understanding of our life with God, it's done. It's complete. That is good news. But it's even better than that. Because not only did Jesus come to complete this sacrificial system to bring about enduring forgiveness and mercy for all, but there's a deeper gift because Jesus is a different kind of high priest. This is what we read in verse 15 of this fourth chapter of Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. What is beautiful about Jesus 
is this. Remember, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the very image of who God is, but Jesus is also Emmanuel, that Jesus can empathize with our human experience, the difficulties and the challenges of just being a person in this world. He knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every single way. Jesus did not come to be some triumphant hero cloaked in dominance and power. He did not come to this world with superhero type of posturing. He, he came here not with violence or military power. Instead, God's glory and God's radiance and God's image was displayed in weakness, in vulnerability, in the capacity of being wounded, which Jesus truly was. God, God is with us, Emmanuel. In this season, we remember how Jesus chose to come to us as one of us, entirely and completely human. He was born. He was a vulnerable infant. He was unable to feed himself. He was dependent upon the generosity and the kindness of others. He went through puberty. He had siblings. He had friends. He had distant relatives that he tried to ignore at parties, right? He went to weddings. He excused himself at Mary and Martha's house to use the bathroom. He felt the pain of loneliness. He had allergies. I think cedar. <laughs> he felt the pressure to please people. He had a particular laugh. He was tempted in every single way that you and I have been tempted. Meaning he wants to cut off people uh, on the highway when they are going too slowly. He was often depleted and exhausted. He was hurt and offended. He had a moment of panic when he did not want to die. He asked for a way out. He was lied to. He was betrayed. He felt the physical, dare I say, sexual harassment of being stripped naked in front of that crowd. And in front of that jeering mob there, he breathed a last breath and his body became limp. He became a corpse. The scandal of Christ is that he was completely and fully human, God in flesh. So I just want to have a thought experiment. Can we just do that for a second? How would it be different if Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came to this world, went into the temple as the ultimate high priest, made the sacrifices, and declared to everyone, it's now over. We don't need to do this anymore. And then he ascended into heaven, right? How would it be, how would it be different? Or how would it be different if Jesus... 2,000 years ago, descended on Good Friday as a fully formed adult and immediately went to the cross, was buried, and three days later rose again and wrapped it all up efficiently, right? How would it, would it be different? How would it be different to you personally? Well, Jesus would still be God's son. I still think that the sacrifice that Jesus made probably would be complete and fulfilled in its entirety, but we would miss something, right? We would miss something, which is our salvation would be truncated because what we would miss out on is a Savior who can, knows what it's like to be fully human, who can empathize with every experience that we've gone through even 2,000 years later. So I want to introduce someone to you. This is Gregory of Nazianus. Uh, he's a sharp-looking man, fourth-century theologian, 
He was the Archbishop of Constantinople, and I believe he was also a lover of shrimp. We, we can focus there. <laughs> or maybe worse, if you focus a little bit closer, I see three numbers. Do y'all? <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, uh, Gregory, he existed in a time in the fourth century. They were still trying to figure out, you can, you can go, yeah, thank you. They were trying to figure out, like, what is it, fourth century, they were still trying to figure out, how do we talk about Jesus? They were trying to put things together, and what I love about church history is they would have these discussions, and then the loser would be called a heretic, and then they were kicked out, right? It wasn't like, oh, we're learning. It's like, you're wrong, and you're a spawn of Satan, and you're gone forever. But they were trying to figure things out, and one of the major debates was, like, how human was Jesus? Some people believed that he was, like, had the appearance of humanity, but he was always sacred. He never left a footprint. Because there's something scandalous about the fact that Jesus was fully human. And this individual, this theologian, has this quote. As they were going back and forth, like, how human was Jesus? He said, what has not been assumed of Jesus has not been healed. Meaning, there's any part of the human experience that Jesus did not encounter, that didn't touch, that he didn't feel and experience, then that part of us can't be healed. Our salvation, in, in his point of view, and I believe it in the, deep, the depth of my own soul, our salvation only goes as deep as Jesus' humanity goes. Jesus chose to go through the entire human experience so that all of our human experience can be healed and redeemed. If, in fact, in this season of waiting and anticipation, this, for me, brings a lot of hope. As this candle burns, as many of you in this season of Advent are waiting and hoping and expecting somehow hope to come to you, you might be asking that same question, of like, where is my hope? The, great, the greatest question that I have experienced, the thing that's combated my faith more than anything else, is the need of waiting for hope. If God is truly all-powerful, if God truly is all-loving, then why in the world am I experiencing so much pain? Why is there so much suffering in this world? There's nothing that's combated my faith more than that question. And my answer is, I don't exactly know how to parse that out. Every simple answer that comes my way usually falls flat. But the healing and the hope that I have ex experienced has been wrapped up in a word, solidarity. Jesus chose solidarity with us in the pain that we experience in this world. Jesus chose to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus chose to be tempted in every single way. And on this side of life, Jesus doesn't seem to pull us out of the pain of being human Jesus steps into it to know, to let us know we're not alone. It reminds me of an old fable. The fable goes like this. A parent lost a child and was riddled with such sorrow and grief they couldn't function. So they decide after a while to go up to the mountaintop and visit a wise man who can maybe somehow help them out. And so they go make that long journey. They go up to the mountaintop and they find the wise man and his apprentice. And the wise man goes, what do you want? And the parent says, I cannot move through my grief. I miss my child too much. 
And so the wise man pauses for a while and says, if you want to find healing, go back into the village and bring me one pound of mustard seeds. And the parent, confused, looks at this wise man and goes, what? Go back into the village, bring me back one pound of mustard seeds. And the, the parent says, no one has that much. And then he says, well, you're going to have to figure it out. And so, confused and frustrated, the parent goes back down, the, uh, down from the mountain, back into the village. And weeks go by. And the apprentice remembers this parent and goes to the wise man. Whatever happened to, whatever happened to them? They didn't come back. And this wise man responded, how much mustard seeds do you think one home has? And the apprentice goes, maybe a cup. So how many homes would this person have to go to and to ask for more mustard seeds? And the apprentice said, dozens. It would take dozens and dozens of homes to get one pound. And the wise man goes, what do you think would happen when this parent would go to each home? <clears throat> well, he would have to tell the story of why do you need so much mustard seeds? And in telling that story, maybe other stories would be shared. The wise man smiled and said the solution for this parent's problem was not waiting on this mountaintop with some wise man, but is waiting in each home from each family who knows the pain it is to lose a child. It is through solidarity that we find a unique kind of healing. It's the healing when you crack open your heart enough to share the pain that might be received by someone gently holding you by the hand and looking you in the eyes and just saying the healing words of me too. Our high priest, though all-powerful and glorious and radiant, though the very image of God, is also marred by the wounds of the human experience so that we might know that Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with me, God with you, God with us. And so in this season, that's what we're going to explore together. In this Advent season, this is what we're going to explore. Every single day, we're going to engage with material that these devotionals that, we're, that have been written that just gives us reflections on what it might have been like for Jesus to be human, not just so we learn more about Jesus' experience, but so that we can encounter a God that is with me and a God that is with you a God who has chosen to walk through this entire experience so that we know we're not alone with it. Because when Jesus becomes Emmanuel, we do find hope. I mean, even when you read this Hebrews passage in this fuller form, just notice what is the fruit of Emmanuel. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. And this is the fruit of that. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. May you have enough courage this Advent to hold your longings to the God who is with you. And may Christ's solidarity be the source of mercy and grace to meet you each and every single day. Friends, welcome to Advent.
We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.